The nation's medicine cabinet has never been so full, thanks to innovative treatments developed by manufacturers. As drug prices rise, payers put up more barriers to access and require patients to shoulder more of the costs. While manufacturers have programs to address these issues, it's clear the current system is not sustainable. But what does the future of access look like? Well, let's try to answer that question on another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast, co-hosted by Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell. Okay, here we are with another episode of Prescription for Better Access with my co-host, Dr. Scott Howell, and we're really excited about today's episode. So, Scott, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, fantastic. I think, Mark, I'm, I'm really excited about today. We have a timely and, I think, foundational episode in many respects today with our guest, David Moles. Welcome, David, and thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for inviting me, and Mark, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, our goal today is, you know, is to have a conversation about the evolving state of affairs regarding patient access to medications, including an outlook for 2023 and, and perhaps even beyond. Mark and I are grateful to have Dave join us for this, and I really can think of no one better qualified for it. Dave's had an illustrious career in healthcare, including working in insurance and in the PBM environment and at some large pharmaceutical companies as well. Dave recently stepped down after a 10-year run as head of market access for Pfizer, where he did some terrific work, and he's now part of a new firm that's trying to craft some new and creative and innovative approaches that can help make things better for the future. So Dave, why don't we start with a little bit about your background? Why don't you share your story with us and how you came to work in healthcare and, and in patient access? Yeah, well, the segue to healthcare was was pretty obvious. I started my career in the steel in industry, so moving into healthcare was just a natural <laughs> But I did. I, I moved into healthcare all the way back in the late 80s, and it was with a company called Equicore, which was a joint venture of Hospital Corps of America and the Equitable. And the vision of that company was really to form a managed care enterprise. So I, I left the steel industry, joined Equicore, and a few years after I was with Equicore, they were acquired by Cigna Healthcare. So in the pharmaceutical industry, people often refer to carrying the bag. And my version of carrying the bag was selling the full line of employee benefits to midsize and large employers. I started in Western PA and eventually migrated out west where I worked in the Arizona markets, the Pacific Northwest where I was based in Seattle, and then ultimately expanded my responsibilities to include Northern California and the Pacific Northwest where I led the the sales and marketing and client services operations for Cigna. After about an eight-year run with Cigna, I left there and joined a company called Diversified Pharmaceutical Services, or DPS as people refer to it. And that was a PBM that was owned by United Healthcare that was acquired by SmithKline Beecham in 94. And I joined that company a few months after that acquisition was finalized. I was on the executive team there and led all of the non-managed care efforts with various clients, including employers and unions and trust and those types of entities. Uh, a few years with the PBM led me to the pharmaceutical group of SmithKline Beecham, which ultimately, as we know, became GlaxoSmithKline. And I had the opportunity over that time to lead most of the market access functions for GSK. And then in 2011, I was given a terrific opportunity to lead the entire market access platform for Pfizer. So I left GSK joined Pfizer, and I spent 10 years leading that market access function at Pfizer. And then, Scott, as you mentioned, I 
decided to retire back in middle of 2021. And since that time, I've done a number of things, but most of the effort has been with a company called Entity Risk. And Entity Risk is a company that was co-founded by three PhD economists. And the primary focus of this company is really to help pharmaceutical companies assess and value their medicines. And then also to the extent that they desire or need to take risk for their products to be able to take thoughtful risk if they decide to enter into value-based agreements as, as we've come to refer to them as. So that's a little bit about where I've been and the background I have. Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Now, obviously, I've had the great pleasure of knowing you for a long time. We worked together at SmithKline Beecham, and you, you were part of the team in managed care then when I recruited, and I've enjoyed our relationship ever since. So thanks for, again for joining us, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to really participate in what I think is a very important discussion. Well, thank you, Dave, and thank you for joining us today, as, as Scott mentioned, and great background. I'm sure we intersected at some point through there because Galaxo was a client many years ago. Bob Ingram is a friend. And so, you know, we're here in 2023, January 2023, and we're looking ahead. And I think there's no doubt that there's someone like you, you've seen all sides of the challenges from the payer side, the PBM side, obviously also from the pharma side. We all know that all, all of our efforts impact patients. And so as you think about the totality of the challenges in patient access, as you look to 2023, what are two or three of the sort of the major issues or items that jump out at you as things that our audience should be aware of? Well, let, let me first just start by saying that, as you mentioned, the career I've had is, has been able to look at healthcare through a number of different lenses. But the one common theme that I've seen over the various decades that I've been in healthcare is that the system works best when patients have affordable access to the best treatments to treat their diseases. I know that's an obvious statement, but that isn't always the case. And in this country, we're fortunate to have access to the best innovation in the world. However, the availability of these clinically important medicines is really meaningless if patients can't afford them. So when I look at 2023, let me first, just from a balance standpoint, let me first start with what I see as some positives when it comes to access. And it really are some of the positive developments that are a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA as we refer to it. So the first are some of the provisions around insulin, where they've reduced the cost to $35 for a month of treatment, not subject to a deductible. So when we all know the detrimental effects that uncontrolled diabetes has to the patient and ultimately to the system. So I think that's a positive. Similarly, there's a provision in IRA that provides access to the recommended adult vaccines without cost to the Medicare beneficiary. So from an access standpoint, I see those as real benefits. But that's the positive side of the ledger. And if I look at the negative side of the ledger, you know, we continue to see a few things that I think impede access to medicines. One is just how the benefit designs have continued to evolve over time where patients are being asked to, to pay a, a higher financial burden for medicines. The second is continued use and proliferation of exclusion programs, and those are taking various versions. And probably to me, the most alarming is, you know, it's one thing if there's other good therapeutic options and alternatives, but we're seeing these programs being applied where there aren't good therapeutic options. And I think that to me is almost unconscionable. And then probably the, the third and, and related are just the continued use of copay accumulators, copay maximizers, all intended to really 
kind of take advantage of the generosity of the pharma manufacturers and the programs that they've put in place to provide financial support to, to the patients that need them. So I'd say, you know, they're the positives and the negatives as, as I see 2023 unfolding. Well, thank you, Dave. Scott, go ahead. It's also a busy time for patients and, and for everybody that's involved in medication access. It's the start of the new plan year for so many folks. And I just wondered what your experience has been with, you know, the renewal season and whether or not in your experience at Pfizer or any of the other places you made special preparations for that. Yeah, well, one one, as we all know, is, is a time of significant change for any benefits. The vast majority of benefits change on January 1st. There's a little bit that in the commercial segment that happens throughout the course of the year. But when I think of volume of change or, or volume in terms of patients impacted, it really happens January 1st. And so as with most cycles that we've gone through, these annual cycles, when there are changes in formulary that force patients to move from one product to another, that creates challenges. Unfortunately, sometimes it creates challenges where patients go untreated and there's been many stories, many anecdotes of the impact that these non-clinical switches end up having on patients. So all parties involved need to make sure they're doing their part to make sure any transition is as smooth as possible. And I would say that's probably the biggest challenge for all stakeholders is when change occurs, whether it's a good change for a manufacturer or a negative change for a manufacturer, what we all need to make sure we do is keep the patient in the center and that we do everything we can to make sure there's continuity of care so that there aren't these kinds of challenges that we've oftentimes heard about. And Dave, I think, though, that one of the overarching themes, of course, with patient access is always around drug pricing, right? You know, a lot of people point the finger at the manufacturer, but at the same time, we know that rebates have been a big driver and the net cost or net benefit to the manufacturer has sort of stayed flat and even gone down over the last five years. And this is data coming out of drug channels. What's your perspective? Because there are, you know, there seem to be even higher and higher cost uh, drugs coming out. And I think it was a study last year that, what was it, JAMA study that said that the launch prices have gone up consistently over the last 12 to 13 years. What's your perspective on drug pricing as it impacts patient access? We could probably spend a whole session dedicated specifically to drug pricing, but let me take a, a stab at, you know, what I think are, are some of the drivers of price and then we could go from there. Where we find ourselves today, I think in large part, is attributed to some of the unintended consequences of the Affordable Care Act. And if you go back and you look at some of the provisions that were in that act, it resulted in greater financial impact to the manufacturers. I'll highlight a few of them. The mandated Medicaid rebate went from 15.1% up to 23.1%. There was a growth in 340B programs, specifically with contract pharmacies, and, and that has just exploded, where they have access to what, in essence, is mandated Medicaid pricing. The other is some of the rebates and fees associated with ACA, which includes the drug user fee, as well as the discounts that are provided in the coverage gap. I know that's changing as a part of IRA. It's still going to be in the coverage gap, but now even in the catastrophic phase. So when I look at just those changes and the financial impact of the manufacturers, if pre-ACA they were making a dollar per unit, and this is all illustrative, post-ACA, that same $1 unless went down to $0.85 cents or $0.80, cents, obviously depending on their mix of business. 
But to make up for that financial, either you have one or two choices. If there's no volume gain, then you have a choice of either you reset your financial expectations for the company and for the brands, or you have to change your unit price. So I think to a large extent, price and price acceleration was driven as a result of ACA. One of the negatives of, and there are a lot of really good things that, that were included in ACA. I also think there's a history, if you go back and look, when companies have decided to launch products and launch them at a significant discount to other products in the therapeutic category, they really haven't been rewarded. And in part, I attribute that to the system of rebates. The system of rebates plays such a significant role, and not only rebates, but other fees that are tied to the list price of, of a drug. It provides incentives in the market to favor higher price, list price drugs, even if the net price and net cost ends up being the same. And if you go back, prior to say 2002, it really wasn't an issue because most of the benefit designs were flat copays and there were no deductibles to speak of. That has turned entirely where over 60% of the volume is now subject when adjudicated to the, to the list price of the drug, whether as part of a deductible that has to be satisfied or part of a copay that's really a coinsurance. So determine it's a percentage of, of the drug cost at the pharmacy. So I think to answer the question, there's a number of factors that have come into play. Some of it is policy related and the consequences of ACA. Some of it is just the market factors that really incent prices to be more inflated than maybe they really need to be. And you really raise a good point when you highlight the fact that net cost has gone down over time, right? There are significant rebates being paid into the system with no direct benefit to patients. There are indirect benefits that people cite with reduced premiums or reduced costs for their cost share if it's an employer-sponsored plan, but the direct impact would be a reduction at the point of, of sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, well said, David. You know, there are a host of things that manufacturers do both directly and indirectly, I think, to try to moderate the impact of the pricing. And I know you've participated in a number of those. The rebates, obviously, are a really big component of that, but there are others, too. Any that stand out in your mind that are especially important in in this day and age? Well, I think first and foremost, what companies are trying to do is ensure that patients have affordable access to their medicines. And a key step in that process is making sure that they achieve quality reimbursement or quality access with insurance companies and PBMs. And that all depends on whether it's under the pharmacy benefit or medical benefit, what that quality access looks like. But when you achieve that, typically provides the best access you're going to get for those brands. So that's number one. But that doesn't necessarily always solve the affordability issue. It helps, certainly, but it doesn't solve the problem. And I've already alluded to the evolution of benefit designs. And maybe just to to take a step back, one of the other, and oftentimes we forget this, but one of the other unintended consequences of ACA was was the Cadillac tax. And the Cadillac tax was essentially going to provide a 40% tax to employers for richer benefit plans. So what did employers start doing in 2011 and beyond is they started making their benefit programs less generous to avoid the tax. And as we know, that tax was ultimately repealed back in 2019. But it set in motion changes in benefit designs even when generous plans existed. So I thought that's worth mentioning as we talk about benefit design. 
So one is ensure quality access for the medicines and whatever reimbursement scheme it is, whether it's under a drug benefit or a medical benefit. And then after that, manufacturers, where they can do it, and it's in the commercial segment, is to provide financial assistance or co-pay support to help patients afford their medicines. It's really, you know, I'm going to say common knowledge, but it's also common sense to know that, you know, short of diet and exercise, medical interventions and medicine interventions are oftentimes the most cost-effective way of treating disease. And there's lots of use cases and lots of proof points out there to support that. So when we don't provide access to these needed medicines, it has an impact to patients, it has an impact to the healthcare system and the society overall. And so I think it's important that the issue of access and affordable access be addressed. On that same theme, where you take a look at the manufacturer and the programs that they put in place, and you've mentioned a few of them, where obviously the copay programs, the patient assistance programs, but you also mentioned things like 340B, where they're discounting the drugs significantly under that program. And then the manufacturers are faced with now this, as you said earlier, these exclusionary programs, right? The product exclusion categories where the products were getting excluded and where their particular product is getting excluded, right? So they're just saying this particular drug is no longer covered and the patient has to go on patient assistance program in spite of the fact of having obviously full commercial coverage. What is the tipping point for manufacturers? They continue to just pick up more and larger share of the check, of the tab, of the cost of these things, while the payers appear to put more on the backs of the patients themselves. Where could this all be going, even as you look past 2023 and into future years? Well, I think we're probably approaching a tipping point when you see some of the actions being taken in the marketplace. And you've highlighted a few of them. The significant growth of 340B flies in the face of really what the intended purpose of the program was designed. And if you look, and I know it's going to vary based on product by product, but in my own experience, I've seen the 340B program, which at one point was would represent somewhere in the low single digits in terms of gross revenue to a manufacturer. In some instances, the 340B program is two or three or four times as big as the Medicaid program. And when you look at how those discounts that are applied to those products are being used, they're not necessarily benefiting patients that need them. Unfortunately, there's a lot of intermediaries that are scraping off and have built a whole business and profit center around 340B. So that's something that the only way to really address that, I think that's got to be a regulatory or a legislative fix to, to go in and kind of hit the reset button and put the program back on track to what it was intended to, to provide. So that's one. And then when you look at you know the actions being taken by payers and intermediaries on behalf of payers to blunt the generous programs offered by manufacturers, and I think we've seen some action. I, I do think we're hitting a tipping point. I was really thrilled to see some of the actions taken by the state to make copay accumulators and copay maximizers illegal in their states. But we both now have alluded to these programs that where companies are lasering out, plan sponsors are lasering out specific products. And sometimes there's no therapeutic alternative, but they're doing it and they tend to be for rare disease or specialty disease that are higher cost. And they're doing it so that they can then steer the patients towards patient assistance programs. 
With a lot of what we're seeing, I think we are at a tipping point, but I really do believe, similar to what we've seen with the IRA and some of the provisions in IRA, that the fix is really going to be a legislative fix and how we can reset the system so that it works for patients. And back to my original comment that the system works best when patients have access to the right medicines and have affordable access, right? Medicines could be there, but if you can't afford them and you don't, you can't access them, it just, the system's not going to work. So Dave, you rightly call out the important role of proper laws and regulations to help referee some of this. Ironically, you know, we also started with the notion that, hey, there were a lot of unintended consequences, you know, from the ACA itself, which actually have contributed to the misalignment of incentives and actually higher list prices over time. What's the role of the private market? Do you still see an opportunity for manufacturers and payers and PBMs to collaborate for new solutions? And if so, are you aware of any models emerging or proofs of concepts uh, being explored? I'm certainly a big supporter of the private sector, but private sector actors are going to act in their own self-interest and best interest. And I think it's just too difficult to align around a specific solution. We've all heard it, and we've all probably participated in these discussions where people have said, you know, the current state of affairs isn't going to continue, right? It's just unsustainable. I mean, we've heard that for a long time, and significant change hasn't really occurred driven by the private sector. Significant change has occurred when mandated through policy. I have seen what I think are some really innovative experiments out there. And, you know, let me call out one. And this is something, and I give them a lot of credit, that Optum RX tried to implement a couple of years ago where they wanted to develop a value-based formulary for the RA category. And basically what they said is any manu- it was basically in any, any willing participant. So any manufacturer who had a product in the RA category that was willing to price their product on a net basis in the range of cost effectiveness as determined by value assessment bodies, they would provide quality access. And that quality access was, you're gonna be on formulary and we're gonna cap the patient out of pocket expense at X dollars per, and it was reasonable, right? X dollars per prescription. So they gave manufacturers the opportunity to participate. Some did, one of the market leaders chose not to. And they didn't get a lot of uptake of that formulary. Now, I applaud the effort. The rationale made perfect sense. And essentially, you know the category. It's a big category with lots of products. There could have been, every manufacturer could have participated. So it could have essentially been an open formulary if everybody decided to participate based on the rules that, the ground rules that were established by Optum. So I applaud the effort, but there's enough of those examples out there where there's really good thinking, there's really good attempts, there's pilots, but I haven't seen anything get to scale. And that's probably what concerns me the most, is that oftentimes people know what the right solutions are. Scott, you and Jamie Robinson, I thought, put together a great white paper with that was very rational. And we sat in a meeting and we all agreed that this makes this is a good common sense approach. But we also agreed to disagree that we could move forward on that basis. And and if you think about what Optum did, essentially it was trying to do what you and Jamie were putting forward in that in that white paper. So I don't want to see the private sector be gutted. I think the private sector is still the optimal way, but I do think there need to be some 
ground rules established that can be driven through some policy actions. Yeah. Well, thanks for calling out that example, Dave. We're still working on those ideas. So as you know, we think of it as uh, value-based pricing and access or fair prices for fair access. And, you know, it's remarkable to me, as you've described well here, how we've all together ended up creating a system that actually favors higher prices and then very large, substantial hidden rebates that largely don't go back to patients, and then very intense utilization management and formula exclusions and cost sharing. And it's basically a high-price, low-access system by design. And yeah, when what we all want is the opposite, we want a reason for manufacturers to show pricing restraint and pricing moderation. And then when you get good fair prices, great access for those medicines and for the patients. And so I continue to believe that a trade ought to be possible. And I'm I'm continuing to write about those ideas and speak about them and also working with uh, some companies on them. And so we're not giving up yet. (laughs) Good. Well, keep up the good fight, because I really do think, as I said, you know, it's a common sense approach. And everybody who sat around that table that time in in Washington, D.C. agreed in principle. But they also were quick to say, but it's going to be really difficult for us to get our organizations to move in this direction. Well, on that on that note, if I could just sort of keep going a little bit a little bit on this topic, because I think it's it leads us to a, an overall theme which we have seen emerging at CareMedics in our conversations with our clients is that manufacturers really stand behind their drugs. They really are willing to put more skin in the game because they're developing these innovative treatments and, in some cases, these cures. How do you see that playing out in terms of other sort of pilots, whether it's a warranty. We saw Pfizer do a warranty product for one of their oncology products. Your new entity, could you talk a little bit about entity risk and what they're doing? How could this play out over the next year or so? Thanks for that question. Well, a couple things. First of all, when I look at market access and I think about how manufacturers engage with payers and part of that engagement is contracting for access, there's a range of potential contracting constructs. In some instances, there's no contract at all. Manufacturers will decide that they're you know, first in class, best in class, there's no competition, they've priced the product fairly, they're not providing any discounts or rebates into the market other than what's mandated through, whether it's Medicaid or 340B or the federal supply schedule. And then from there, you could go across a continuum of contracts to include some of the more traditional types of contracts where there's a rebate or discount in exchange for an agreed upon coverage position and you could you know, move down this continuum of innovation in terms of contracting all the way to, I would say, is the far end of that continuum where you have these risk-based contracts. In some instances, companies will want to take risk for their product because they feel so strongly and they will find good commercial rationale to do it, either to improve access or to improve patient affordability or to differentiate their product from a competitor product. And in some instances, they're gonna be required to do it. And let me address the required part. And and you mentioned some of these transformational therapies that potentially are curative. And so let's talk about gene-based or cell-based therapies. You know, we recently saw that CSL and Unicure got approval for their hemophilia B gene therapy, which I wanna congratulate them on, on bringing this really transformational therapy to market. It carries a price tag of $3.5 million. I will say, I think this is correct. I think that ICER 
has found that to be in a cost-effective range. And if you understand the hemophilia B market and know that these patients are on chronic therapy for a lifetime, and that cost ranges, right? It's weight-based therapy. So if you look at the standard of care, that cost could be in the 400000 to as much as five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. So at 3.5 million, if the patients respond to that therapy, right? So that's an initial response, and then they have a durability of response. Ultimately, that 3.5 million is cost savings to the system. However, I also believe that CSL and any of the other gene therapy manufacturers, including my former company will likely have to take risk for the outcomes of that product. And those outcomes will be, as I mentioned, first will be the initial response. So therapy is administered, is the patient based on the right clinical metrics responding to that therapy? And then if they do, what's the durability of that response? Now, they may have to guarantee that you know the patient goes out four or five years or some period of time, and there's no return to prophylactic therapy. So I think that there is going to be a need or desire, and sometimes it's going to be both, to enter into these outcomes-based agreements. So where does entity risk come in? So entity risk has really developed a couple key, what I would say, key differentiating capabilities, and this is really the primary focus of the company. One is helping companies assess value of their medicines, and part of that assessment is using both traditional cost-effectiveness methodologies, as well as what I consider to be a more innovative cost-effective methodology that's applicable to rare disease and orphan disease and disease to treat severe disease. And it's something called generalized risk adjustment cost-effectiveness. And we're fortunate that one of our co-founders, Darius Lakdawalla, and one of our advisors, Chuck Phelps, are the innovators behind GRACE. Ironically, Chuck Phelps is also the innovator behind traditional cost effectiveness. And after more than a decade of research, they concluded that the system, that traditional CE is flawed when it comes to certain categories of drugs, like those to treat rare disease or severe disease. In essence, what they have said is the way it's been applied is that quality is, a, you know, they use qualities as the basis. A quality is a quality is a quality, and there's no adjustment for baseline health status. And the GRACE methodology makes the appropriate adjustments. And in fact, really what they've said is the reimbursement authorities around the world have recognized that the traditional CE is sometimes flawed, but they haven't had a good methodology to replace that. So what they've done is they've just made what seems to be arbitrary decisions on what the right reimbursement should be. So we build a whole model around these methodologies. And to make it efficient is we've developed software that supports these types of analyses which is key because traditional CE could take as much as 30 weeks and be pretty costly to compete these to complete these kinds of analyses. Darius knows because he and a, another one of our co-founders were also the founders of Precision Health Economics, so they have plenty of time and experience with traditional CE. So we're trying to take a critical part of the business, make it more accurate, more applicable to what we see as this expanding portfolio of specialty medicines, but also do it in an efficient way. The other side of key capability within the company is what we're doing to support companies who decide to take risk for their products. When you look at, and let's use, stick with the hemophilia gene therapy examples. If you look at the, the pivotal trials, those trials had you know 50 patients or so in them. If you talk to the companies and you ask, well, 
we can look at what the trial design is. What would constitute a treatment failure? You get a response. And then you say, well, what are you seeing in the trial? And they're saying, well, we don't see any failures. Well, if you're going to take risk for that product and you have to start accruing reserves to fund any that risk, you can't assume that there's going to be a 100% success rate. So we're helping companies evaluate how their products may perform in the real world and then helping them determine what the right clinical endpoints should be, what the right contractable endpoints should be, and then helping them make sure that they make the right financial provisions to account for any kind of risk that they would be assuming. And we're doing it again by using technology and software to inform these kinds of decisions in a more effective and efficient manner. Well, that's great. That's exciting and and certainly needed. Yeah, super interesting to hear, Dave. I'm curious, are you far enough along to have had much feedback from payers yet? The company is still relatively new. Twenty, I'd say 2023 is going to be a pretty pivotal year for us. The work that we're doing is, is more with the pharmaceutical companies and not necessarily with the payers. When you look at value assessment and value-based pricing, there, there are a number of different use cases. One is essentially helping to assess the price, but another is you know, helping to inform clinical trial work. Right? If you could quantify each endpoint, or if, right, you, you can make decisions before you enter into a phase three trial. You can make decisions about the, the trial design that has the ability to enhance the value of that medicine. That, to me, is significant. Another use case is with investors or with business development groups when they're looking at either investing or making acquisitions. One of the things they should be looking at is what is the value-based price of that medicine, and then and then try to project out what you would expect the you know the revenue to be, so that you're making prudent investment or or BD decisions. So there's a number of different use cases for that application. And then over on on the risk side, you know, we've been engaged in a number of different discussions about how we can support those efforts. But and ultimately, what we want to do is we want to build a software company so we could put a lot of this in the hands of the users. And some of that development cycle is is playing out here in, in the first part of 2023. Great. And could you take a second and just maybe compare and contrast that to your experience or your perspective in the marketplace about more traditional outcomes-based contracts for more mainstream products. I know based on the experience I've had in the marketplace, we've had some initial successes with those things, but they were hard to scale. They they weren't durable necessarily over multiple formulary and contracting cycles. I'd just be curious to understand what your experience and perspective is on that, that part of the market. I think my experience is similar to yours, Scott. I think there was a lot of interest and energy behind these risk-based or value-based agreements. And you could actually look, I think Pharma, somewhere, I don't know if it's still there, but they had published a report on these types of agreements. And you could see a growth from about 2014, 15, or 16 for about four or five years. I think some of that growth accelerated under the Trump administration and some of what the Pharma CEOs were saying they were willing to do to, to support the value of their medicines. But I think your experience and my experience is similar. You know, there were some instances where we did it and we were trying to really prove or differentiate our medicine from another medicine. Even though there was lots of studies done, companies wanted us to go at risk and they wanted to to see the results in their own population. But once you've done it and you've proven that the medicine is differentiated from others that they may be considering, there's no reason to keep the agreement in place. So I think for, there, for a variety of reasons, we saw growth, 
we've seen that drop off. But I think this portfolio of specialty medicines and some of these more orphan disease medicines that carry significant price tags, I don't think there's going to be much of a choice in some instances, and especially when there are other standards of care that exist. Hemophilia A, hemophilia B are two really good examples. Frankly, nobody needs the gene therapy because there are viable, proven, effective, and safe treatment options. However, I know if I had a child who was, you know, had hemophilia A or B and there was an opportunity when they met the criteria, age being one of them, to have the gene therapy. And once it was, I was comfortable that it was safe and effective, I would certainly want them to have it so that they would have the opportunity of not having to be on maintenance chronic therapy the rest of their lives. On this topic, because I want to go one step further, because I was at a conference last year talking to market access folks and and they said outcomes contracts are just another another name for a rebate, right? And that the payers are sometimes hooked on the rebates, right? And so how do you sort of prepare a, the payer community for a transition, a transition towards more value-based contracting where manufacturers will stand behind the product and less on the sort of less on just the flat rebates. Is there a way to navigate this to let one continue to grow while the other potentially recedes a little bit? I don't think there's a way of accelerating the transition other than the portfolios are really going to drive this this change. I would agree with some of the feedback that this is just another you know form of rebate or discount. In fact, multiple times, and Scott, you were probably in the audience when you heard it from the podium, is payers would say, we're not going to forego the base rebate for a VBA, but we'll do it on top of the base rebate. And so I think we have to recognize, and that's why I wanted to reference earlier, there's a whole continuum of contracting. And I believe that if both parties can achieve the desired outcome and do it really efficiently, then that's what they should do. And if that's a traditional contract rate. If it's another construct, that's fine too. But I do think that there are products and categories where it's going to be either necessary, it's going to be the price of admission to get the access. Or one example that you know that I had is you know, we launched a product that was first in class, best in class, but it was primarily in a Medicare population. And I'd say 70 to 80 percent of the volume is what we estimated would be Medicare. Well, For those of us who know what the current Medicare benefit design is for those that have the standard design, for specialty medicines, it renders the product usually unaffordable. That's changing now as a result of the IRA, or it's changing next year as a result of the IRA. But we chose to engage certain Part D plan sponsors with willing to take risk for the product. And I know it was a very thoughtful way of constructing it. And the feedback was that this is really innovative. This is really thoughtful and exactly what we're looking for. But what we were asking for in exchange for taking that risk is to buy down the patient's copay to a flat amount, right? Let's just say $50 or $100, something that was more in the range of affordability. And basically, the feedback was as much as we would like to do it, We can't do it because if we do it and nobody else does, we're going to get more than our fair share. And as a result, we're going to be adversely selected against and we just can't do it. So 
there's a whole bunch of factors that are out there, Mark. I don't think that traditional contracting is going to go away under the current system of, you know, that relies on rebates. But I do think that risk-based contracting is going to grow and it's going to grow just because of the way that the portfolios are and pipelines are evolving. Yeah, it's, it's very clear that for things like ultra-orphan diseases, cell and gene therapy with the very big high price tags, that folks want to have a sense of confidence that this thing's going to work before they make the commitment to sell out the dollars. And as you know, too, those populations are small enough that they can be more easily tracked than some of the larger ones. And so reconciling the data about the performance is a bit easier as well. So clearly a, a different opportunity for the role there. And if I could, Dave, on another sort of another topic, manufacturers have obviously supported, as we talked earlier, a range of copay programs, patient assistance and others. But they're also they also have internal patient access programs. You know, in many cases, manufacturers will have an internal capability or they'll outsource it to a hub, a hub provider. What do you see as any of the sort of the big trends potentially ahead for the patient support programs or patient access programs or hub providers as we look to 2023 and beyond? It's interesting, Mark. I've done a little bit of work just advising some private equity companies as they look at pharmaceutical services. And one of the things I had a chance to look at was just, you know, hub providers and hub services. And I think the common theme that I saw emerge was one that whoever can win the digital race and make the process more efficient, make it higher quality, I think that's what really what's going to be a big differentiator. When you go back to, you know, the early days of hubs, and I was involved in some of the hubs real early, you know, over, gosh, now it's probably a decade and a half ago, and I look at how far they've come, there's been a lot of improvement, but still room to improve. And I think a, a big part of that's going to be leveraging technology and digital capabilities to do that. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So, Dave, so maybe we can uh, just wrap up here a little bit now. We've covered a lot of interesting territory but as you know, one of the goals for the podcast here is in addition to informing ourselves about these issues, but also hopefully inspiring ourselves and others to take action to help improve patient access to medicines. And so in that vein, what's your prescription for better access? Great, Scott. So let's start with the positive. This decade holds great promise given the pipelines and the innovation that we're seeing coming through these pipelines. There are over 8,000 medicines that are currently moving through various phases of development. Probably about three quarters of those are first in class innovative breakthrough medicines. So the real positive is we continue to make great advances in science that are gonna benefit patients and ultimately the healthcare system and society as a whole. But the challenges still exist. And for years, I've heard the refrain that the current system is unsustainable. But I don't know who we're expecting to make the change, right? Unfortunately, as I've said earlier, I think that the change is going to have to be driven in part from policy changes. But if it were me, and if I were able to make changes that I think will benefit the system, I would do a handful of things. The first would be rewarding manufacturers who price their products in the range of a value-based price or a cost-effective price based on accepted methodologies. That would be one. The second is, in exchange for that, part of the reward is this value-based access in exchange for a value-based price. Take away the impediments to affordable access and reward the manufacturers for what 
I would say is doing the right thing from a pricing standpoint. The third would be if the system of rebates continues, I would require that those rebates get applied at the point of sale. As you know, this was one of the key items that was featured in the drug pricing blueprint. Right? This is something that was proposed back in May of 2018 under the Trump administration by Secretary Azar and his, his team, which included John O'Brien and my dear friend Dan Best. May he rest in peace and we all miss him dearly. But it was a very thoughtful document, and to the extent you haven't looked at it, I would dust it off and look at it because it really gets to some of the root causes of the challenges we have, and I think brought forward some very practical solutions to the problems. The other thing that was included in there that I would certainly support is we have to change the way fees are paid to the intermediaries. And that includes wholesalers and distributors and the PBMs, where there are admin fees and data fees and all these other fees that are accruing that are based on the list price of the product as opposed to some other unit of of measure. And I think that, as you would expect, incents higher prices or incents favoring products with higher prices, even if the net price is the same. So there are some of the changes that I would make. And my call to action to those listening is, if you believe that the system is unsustainable, and I believe that most of us feel that way because I've heard it for years, you know, be an advocate for change and be an advocate within your own company and be an advocate outside of the, your company and in the industry. And ultimately, I think pharma is going to have to align on what the right solutions are. And the payer community is also going to have to align on what the right solutions are. And then once there's an alignment, create a level playing field so there's no unfair advantage to any one stakeholder that's competing with one another in the industry. So that's what I would do. If we sit back and do nothing, then whatever happens, we may not like it versus trying to drive change that we think is positive and ultimately to benefit patients. Well, that's why we're here. That's why we have this podcast, The Prescription for Better Access. And that's what we are trying to have, as Scott said, the dialogue. But also, we want to just take a moment to thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your ideas. And I got to tell you, I love your prescription for better access. It summarizes a lot of the key points that that we believe in, that Scott and I know, that what Scott and I got aligned on in terms of how we became brothers in our efforts to uh, improve patient access. So we certainly agree with a lot of your great points. So thank you for joining us today, Dave. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And really, thanks for including me in this really important discussion. I really appreciated the opportunity to share my thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Dave. So, Mark, as we wrap up here, I know, you know, Dave, as you can see, he's obviously a deep expert in these things. I mean, he hit a lot of salient points. What were some highlights for you that stood out? Well, I followed the lead of my uh, fellow partner here co-host, and I actually took notes this time. So a couple of things that stood out for me, of course, is all the benefits that he talks about, not only of the drugs and the pipeline, but also the benefits of the IRA and how it's going to have immediate impact on on the patients in 2023. The second is, is that there's still too many barriers in 2023. And some of them are getting very scary, like the patients or particular drugs being lasered out of what should be or required by law is called an essential essential benefit. And so the increasing barriers, the challenges there, I love his idea that some of these just are going to need legislative fixes, that the 
fact that there's been states that, that have already outlawed copay accumulators and maximizers, that should be all 50 states. And then, of course, how we can reform 340B and do some things there. And then I, I think he brought up a great point. We need to have this sort of rethinking of benefit design, this evolution of benefit design, new models for contracting. A lot begins right there with sort of creating this Gordian knot of what we have to deal with and potentially solving that with, with improved benefit design. And then I like the fact that he talked about innovative experiments, whether it's even Optum's previous effort on value-based formulary, but new pilots and new initiatives underway. And as, as he said at the end, taking risks, you know, being an active advocate and a partner in trying to move these things forward. And then finally, coming out of the hub business, I loved hear, hearing him say what his prediction there is that the hub that wins is the one that wins the digital race. And so that was a key theme that I, uh, I took away as well. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that tech forward approach as well, as you know. For me, I, I agree with all those elements. And if I step back and I reflect a little bit at a macro level, what came through was just how fundamentally important it is trying to get this right and make it better. But also the fact that the current approaches are really stuck. And on the one hand, we've had a private market that has talked about it a lot, but as Dave has pointed out, you know, has done less, which has invited government actions. And certainly some of these things appear to need government action. But at the same time, there have been a whole host of unintended consequences in the past that have, you know, make certain aspects of this and maybe even the whole thing overall worse in the long run. And that's a tough conundrum to solve, but it's, I think it's foundational. I think that somehow... We need a breakthrough, and maybe we should spend some more time on this in the future in, a, in an episode or two, but how do we reconcile what's needed from the private market, the proper role of the government, avoiding blunt instrument approaches and unintended consequences and all those things? It's, it reminded me how hard it is, but how important it is. So thank you. I totally agree, and I think you're exactly right. There's several, I wrote down several potential topics that we need to go dive deeper into. And again, that's part of why it was so exciting to have Dave here as our guest and talking about 2023. And so with that, thank you, Dave, for joining us. I want to thank uh, my co-host, Dr. Scott Howe, for his uh, partnership in uh, creating this uh, podcast. And for every all the listeners out there, you know, we are thrilled that you're going to join us on this journey. We encourage you to find us wherever you're finding your other podcasts. You'll be able to find us, be able to register and get notified of future episodes. And you will, we will have information about information on this episode in our show notes as well. So with that, thank you, everybody. And thank you for joining us for another episode of Prescription for Better Access. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.